Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, March the 4th. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran, who's been hanging out with crocodiles. <laughs> yeah, I did. I've been swimming with crocodiles in the NT, and now I'm in a studio with you so early in the morning. Same thing. This one, Well, this one's much better, Tom, <laughs> of course. All right, let's get down to business. Today, part two of our coverage of the private school petition that generated 4,000 accounts of sexual assault. The fact that we thought it was normal because it happened to all of us is um, the whole point of this. So where are the male voices standing up on this issue? Um, And how do we change the behaviour of young men? That is today's briefing. There really has to be a sense of self-reflection, I think, for all men, young or old, because all men do have a role to play. That's in just a moment. First, here are the big news stories of the day. The Attorney-General Christian Porter has revealed himself as the minister accused of rape in 1988. He gave a press conference yesterday where he strenuously denied the allegations. The things that are being claimed to have happened did not happen, that I do not mean to impose anything more upon your grief. But I hope that you will also understand that because what is being alleged did not happen, I must say so publicly. Yeah, that was Christian Porter there. Uh, He was actually addressing the parents of the complainant uh, who has since taken her own life. She took her own life last year. Uh, He acknowledged in that press conference that he did know the complainant, uh, but only for a short period of time when he was 17 through debating competitions. He says he's tried to respect the process and the law by waiting to comment until police concluded their investigation. While I have followed the rules and stayed silent, I have been subject to the most wild, intense, unrestrained series of accusations that I can remember in modern Australian politics. Maybe that's the new normal. I hope for everyone's sake it's not. So Porter won't be standing down from his position as Attorney General. Uh, He argued yesterday that doing so would set a dangerous precedent where someone could lose their position on the basis of an unproven accusation being published in the media. Yeah, and I think he he almost had no choice, I think, but to out himself as the minister because if you went on social media in the last few days, you would have seen his name all over Twitter. And also he has cabinet colleagues that are being implicated somewhat um, in those allegations as well. And he said as much coming out that he did want to clear the name of his um, fellow colleagues as well. His statement, though, hasn't stopped any calls for an independent inquiry into the allegations. Anthony Albanese, the Labor leader there, Sarah Hanson-Young from the Greens, and also former barrister and independent MP Zali Stegall are among those calling for further inquiry. Here's Zali. I think the Prime Minister should call for an independent investigation into these allegations by a retired prominent judge, for example, to really ensure and and find what is the case around these allegations so that then we can know whether there is, in fact, a case to answer by the Attorney-General. So Christian Porter says he'll be taking leave after speaking to his doctor. It's mental health leave, but he won't be standing down or standing aside. Uh, It will be interesting to see where this goes from here and whether he can keep that position as Attorney General. I think two things might have an impact on that. One is whether that independent inquiry happens. Um, Mm -hmm. The other is the South Australian coroner is still considering uh, an inquest into the woman's death. So that could cause further problems for Christian Porter. It's also important to note that there will not be any criminal proceedings here because 
Uh, the woman that made the allegations, as we said, is no longer with us. She cannot be cross-examined. So uh, the case will not go before a criminal court. And if that story brought up any issues for you, of course, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14. And to news now about the other Morrison minister uh, on stress leave in connection to sexual assault allegations. This time it's Defence Minister Linda Reynolds. Um, she has not denied that she labelled alleged rape victim and former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins a lying cow. According to the Australian newspaper, Senator Reynolds made the comments within earshot of other staff members on the day Higgins went public with her claims. So in a statement, Senator Reynolds says that she never questioned Higgins' account of the alleged sexual assault, but that she did comment on media reports surrounding circumstances that she felt had been misrepresented. Yeah, and Jan, as this has been happening, uh, Grace Tame, the Australian of the Year, was giving quite a strong speech at the National Press Club. Well, it was an, ex- an extraordinary speech. I don't know if mm. you... I watched the whole thing. Yeah. She's 26. I Some press club speeches get quite a lot of publicity and generate a lot of buzz. Most don't. This one (laughs) really did. And that was partly because of her conviction. And I think the way that she spoke so clearly and articulated things so clearly as well. She was particularly scathing when she was asked about the Prime Minister's response to the Brittany Higgins rape allegations a fortnight ago, um, when he said that he needed to consult his wife, Jenny, or that he consulted his wife, Jenny, before he made a statement. And she said to him that you need to think about this like a father. Here's what Grace Tame had to say on that. It shouldn't take having children to have a conscience. And actually, on top of that, having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Yeah, it was quite a day yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, it certainly was. I think the look on her face when she answered that question really said it all. And a 14-day quarantine period has turned into 19 days for dozens of passengers who recently arrived in Brisbane from Doha thanks to a new strain of COVID-19. Yeah, it's bad news for more than 70 passengers on Qatar Airways QR898. This plane touched down in Brisbane on February 17 from Doha. Now, the people on the plane were due to end their mandatory 14 days quarantine yesterday, but alas, they received a letter sent to their rooms notifying them that they'll have to remain spread across two hotels until March 8. Yeah, four passengers have tested positive with the strain. Three are in hotel quarantine in Brisbane and a fourth has travelled to New Zealand. Yeah, not not too much is known about this strain at the moment, but uh, I think authorities are being very careful and they believe that some of the infections could occur quite late in that 14-day quarantine period. That's why they're keeping people in there for longer than two weeks. It's bad news. And an extraordinary petition has surfaced demanding the release of one of Australia's most high-profile child killers, Kathleen Folbig. It's been almost 20 years since Folbig was convicted of killing her four infant children, all less than 18 months old, uh, over a 10-year period. Um, This was between 1989 and 1999. And now this petition, which has been signed by 76 of the country's top doctors and scientists, calls for her freedom. Yeah, so ANU researchers have found that both of Folbig's daughters, Sarah and Laura, were carrying a mutation of a gene that they inherited from their mother, which can lead to sudden and unexplained death in infancy, while the two boys, Caleb and Patrick, had illnesses which could aggravate or cause respiratory arrest. And Aussie music legend Michael Gudinski will receive a state funeral in Victoria. Yeah, the Premier Dan Andrews says it will be a celebration of his life and his contribution to the music industry. I don't know many people that love Melbourne and Victoria more than Michael did. 
and Melbourne and Victoria loved him as well and we miss him. We miss him terribly. It's a, it's a very sad day. But it won't be a sad occasion. It'll be an occasion where we can come forward and celebrate all that, that he did. Yeah, he was a huge force in the music industry, founded Mushroom Group in 1972. It became Australia's largest independent entertainment group and his touring company brought out music acts to Australia. He was just very heavily invested in the Australian music scene, wasn't he? So many tributes for him. I don't think that day will be sad either, you know, with, with his energy in the room. It'll at that be a stage, party. It'll, yeah, it'll be going off. And we'll get to our briefing topic in just a moment, but we'd love you to reach out to us via Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the stories we're, we're covering. We're going to start reading them out in the podcast so we can basically, you know, communicate directly with you through the show. So... Follow us on Instagram and chime in anytime on the direct messages. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the issues we're covering and any ideas you have for things that you'd like us to cover. All right, Jan, we'll catch you tomorrow. Annika's about to jump in as we look at part two of the school petition that unearthed thousands of stories of sexual assault. Yesterday on The Briefing, we told you about that petition that rocked Sydney's private school community. Two weeks ago, former Canberra student Chanel Chantos called for signatures as part of her push to have consent training prioritised in schools. Since she put that petition out, she got an incredible response. Over 20,000 people signed the petition, but 4,000 people submitted stories of alleged sexual assaults. 4,000! And they didn't name the perpetrators, but they named the school where they came from and their own school. The range of testimonies goes from like extremely kind of malicious, disgusting, like planned, weird gang rape to um, the bread and butter of rape culture. The fact that we thought it was normal because it happened to all of us is um, the whole point of this. The revelation from Chanel's petition, along with the shocking allegations from Parliament House relating to Brittany Higgins and that 1988 allegation involving a cabinet minister, that's dominated the news for the past few days and shows that big change is needed to the behaviour of men. It shouldn't be no means no. It should be pretty much anything except yes, please do this with me means yes. So in this second part of our briefing on the sexual assault petition from the schools, we go to the male voices in this community to get their perspective on this problem and what needs to change. 19-year-old Lewis was the school captain at a private school and he says the teaching that he experienced around sexual assault was severely lacking. In terms of the actual school education, it it, it is very lacklustre. We had maybe a week on it in science and uh, maybe a term where we focused on certain aspects of contraception and things of the like in PDHPE but it's not every day. And the majority of things relating to consent and sexual assault and those kind of really, really vital, important, relevant topics in sexual education were done externally. Character was brought in to kind of relate to the guys and go, look, guys, you know, you shouldn't rape. It felt like ticking a box. Most young men feel feel no real need to extend and look into their sexual education on their own, which is what is needed. But you talk to a young woman who who is far more educated in kind of the sexual uh, content because they've done their own education, they've done their own because they feel like they're in danger and feel like they need to know these things. As you can hear from Lewis, there's a lot of work to be done in getting the message right. 
Rob Starrick is a former Shaw student who's written about the need to change the culture in these boys' private schools. Rob, what's your response to this petition? A lot of sadness and sort of angst for all those girls that have shared their story and what they went through. I think it's, again, I mean, how many more examples do we need, I suppose? But it's, again, really brought home the lack of proper training and education and understanding that our young boys are getting as they grow into be teenage boys and into young men, you know, and I'm hoping now that we've got this momentum that we can really see some positive, substantial progress to how we teach and educate our young boys. I really do think that we have to change our masculine culture and the way we talk about masculinity and I think getting into our schools and having really proper ongoing discussions about things like sexual consent, respectful relationships is just an absolute imperative now. Rob, there's something I wanted to ask you about the roles of schools in this sort of situation. How much time would you actually want to spend on consent and would that be as part of sex education or do you think it has a role outside of school, maybe after school when something you could go to with your parents? It's, it's really, it's a, it's a two-pronged attack as far as I see it. I think it is schools and I think it is parents. I think it's absolutely parents as well. Look, and I think back to, I mean, it was 20-odd years ago, but the consent and sex ed education I got at school, and I went to a very fancy all-male private school, you know, one of those high fee paying schools, it was pathetic. Um, it was next to nothing. And I had one sort of awkward chat with my dad when I was 16 or 17, and that was it. And sadly, what I think, you know, the stories we're seeing lately, it's still in a lot of cases something similar. So, look, I think, I do think I, I appreciate the curriculum is pretty crowded. But I think consent and sexual consent should be part of the pastoral care system, particularly for adolescents. But I think the reality is it's got to start earlier. And to your point, Annika, I think you can talk about consent in healthy age-appropriate settings. It's not just about sex. It's actually about how you interact with, with other people and how you show respect, care and empathy for them. So how early do these conversations need to start? As you say, they don't actually have to be about sex. It's consent in terms of touching other kids or or things like this. Is this something you do as a dad and how do you bring it up? I think it probably starts somewhere towards the end of primary school when kids are sort of getting ready or they're on the sort of physical and emotional transition into adolescence and high school. I think that's the reality. But as I said before, I think you can do this in quite an age-appropriate way where it's not going to shock or stress um, young kids, but it's going to give them the tools they need to know that they can withhold consent, that it's their body, that they can say yes or no to whether it's family, friends, whether it's playing, you know, as they get older, it can go into the intersex consent and, and romantic relationships. So I think it really does start in primary school. But again, it should be at that stage, should be parents and teachers and schools working together, making sure that there's really a healthy, open discussion. And I think that's what we've seen missing for so long is the discussion isn't ongoing and we have these one or two awkward chats or awkward lessons. A lot of that culture that we've seen sort of exposed by the petition and the sharing of stories, that culture is still out there in the playgrounds and kind of hidden away from the pastoral care and support and the education of parents. And that's what we really need to try and tackle. So you don't think it could start, I guess, at lower primary school when we're just having kids 
interact with each other in the playground about hugging or roughhousing each other, you know, that they should maybe ask consent before launching in or is it too hard with young kids? It's um, a tricky line when it comes to really young kids. I, I see my kids playing with their neighbours right now and kids from four, five, six, seven, eight, they have varying levels of understanding of one another's boundaries. I think you can certainly start, I think you can lay the groundwork really early in, in primary school, as you said, around sort of playing on the, the playground and and sort of just being respectful with, with one another. I think, you know, even a really early lesson like if you have an accident, you knock a kid over and hurt them, don't just walk away. I saw that on the weekend. A little boy crashed, tackled another little boy at a party and hurt him and just walked away. They are the sort of lessons you can get to in primary school where you're just teaching respect and also just empathy. You know, I think that's a big part of this conversation is trying to empathise and care for another person and understand where they're coming from. Rob, the nature of Chanel's petition really put the focus on this idea of consent training. But when we spoke to her on yesterday's episode, it, it was a much broader holistic problem about the attitude and identity of young men and the way they see strength and sexuality. And it's really complex, you know, the sort of identity issues that need to be unpacked here. How do you think we should be hearing those stories and how do you think we should be responding and how should our attitudes change? The first point is, I think it's incumbent on all men and whatever age to not turn away and not turn a blind eye. And I think that's big part of the problem that we've seen for too long is men might think that's not on me or that's not my problem and they turn away. And let's be honest, in big part because it's so uncomfortable to, to face the reality of what's going on. And I think that's the first thing is men really need to listen actively at the moment and understand, I think, the extent of the problem, how early it started and, and get a better understanding of what these stories are that are being shared. And I think for too long we've ignored that. And then there really has to be a sense of self-reflection, I think, for all men, young or old, because all men do have a role to play. That was Rob Starrick, who went to shore and who's now trying to change the culture of young men. He's written a book called Man Raises Boys. Incredibly complex, isn't it, Annika? Like the challenge to get inside the heads of these teenage boys whose frontal lobe isn't developed and when so much of their behaviour is governed by how they fit in with their peer group, the question around how much changing those broader attitudes will change the behaviour when people are out getting drunk and going to parties for the first time. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Also around the role of schools. Obviously, it's great to talk about it in a school setting, but I know I didn't always listen to what was taught to me in schools. I think it has to be a, a wider societal shift. And perhaps, unfortunately, it's even generational, which means it's not going to happen overnight. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're going to interview a nun. Her and a bunch of students are suing the federal government over climate change. Listener.